Well, a few years ago, I was asked by a friend to run in a 65-mile relay race through the Ozark Mountains in northwest Arkansas. Four runners would be responsible for running two different legs of the race, each leg consisting of about eight miles of diverse terrain through winding roads, rocky trails, dry creek beds, and lots of elevation change. Now, this is not a marathon I was being asked to run, but I knew that if I was going to do it, I would have to train for it like it was. And so, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I decided to do it. And so, months out from race day, I, I began training and conditioning my body for roughly 16 miles of, of mountain running. And early in my training, I learned what legs of the race I had been assigned. One leg would be through some of the toughest terrain in the entire course, but the other leg would be the last leg, which meant I'd be the one crossing the finish line if I didn't break my ankle or quit before then. And one of the things that I discovered as I trained was how the prospect of crossing that finish line affected all of those grueling days and months of training. Every mile that I ran, every mile that I ran and every step that I took was training toward crossing that finish line. That, that was what I, was, I would think about, and it was that moment on that day that motivated me and gave me perspective for all of those hard, miserable days leading up to it. You don't have to have run a marathon or a 65-mile relay race through the mountains to know what I'm talking about. All of us live with future days shaping our present days. Your future paycheck encourages you to, to get up out of bed and go to work every day. The future result of a fit body inspires you to go to the gym every day, even when you don't feel like it. Your future graduation ceremony motivates you today to, to do your homework and to study for the big exam. To save yourself from, from future car trouble, you get an oil change done now. The point is, looking ahead to something in the future shapes what you do in the present. The same thing, the same thing is true in the Christian life. For as Christians, we know that every step, every breath, every moment in this life is moving us closer and closer to the final day when the Lord Jesus splits the sky and we will see his face. The great reformer Martin Luther put it this way, there are two days on my calendar, this day and that day. The day right in front of him and the day of Christ's return, this day and that day, those were the two days that he kept in perspective at all times. And it's this same eternal perspective that the Apostle Peter leaves us with as we conclude our study in 2 Peter this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of 2 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 3, looking at the final section of the letter, verses 14 to 18. And as you're turning there, let, let me just take a moment to remind you where we've been in the letter so far. The Apostle Peter you'll remember, is, is drawing near to the end of his life. He's about to be executed by the Roman emperor Nero. And the last thing he does with 
His final moments on earth is write this letter to churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. And in this letter, he, he wants to help these Christians get that eternal perspective. He wants the day that King Jesus returns to motivate these Christians to continue persevering in the truth and striving after godly living. And so in chapter 2, the real meat of the letter Peter warns these Christians about false teachers who had rejected the day of Christ's return and, and who were twisting the scriptures in order to lead people in the church astray. And in chapter 3, he reminds them that a final day, in fact, is coming. On that day, Jesus will return. Heaven and earth will be burned up with fire, and the ungodly will be destroyed. But those who wait for that day, growing in godliness, who hasten its coming, will inherit a new world infinitely better than this one. We pick up his final words, chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight, at peace. Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let me pray. Father, we pray now as we come to your word that you would open our eyes to see and to behold once again the beauty, the majesty, the power, the glory, the value, the worth, the magnificence of King Jesus. We pray that in every way right now, we would decrease and he would increase. That is in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the main idea of these verses is this. Eternity is coming soon, so make every effort to cultivate godly growth while you wait. In other words, you and I should live this day and every day after in light of the last day. You and I should live this day and every day after in light of the last day. And we're to cultivate godly growth in two ways. Two ways these verses teach us to live in light of the last day. Number one, grow in godliness. Grow in godliness. That's what we're going to see in verses 14 to 16. And number two, grow in Christ. So we'll see in verses 17 to 18. The day of eternity is coming. So be godly people and be growing people. That's Peter's basic idea in these final verses. So let's look at that first point. Point number one, grow in godliness. So over the, the last 
five weeks, as, as we've studied Second Peter, we, we've seen our growth in godliness has been really the main thrust of, of all of Peter's exhortations. All these warnings about false teachers and all his reminders about the coming day of the Lord have really been aimed at that end. This is how he started the letter back in chapter 1. In fact, go ahead and turn back. Turn back, just flip the page to chapter 1. And just, just look at these verses with me, and we'll see how he's already been, how he's already been bringing this, this point to bear even from the very beginning. Verse number 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse number 3, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Verse 10, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. And then in verse 12, he, he tells us the whole reason that he has written this letter is to remind these Christians to grow in the qualities he described in verse 5. And then he spends the rest of the letter warning these Christians about false teachers who are trying to stunt their growth and prevent them from flourishing in these qualities. Well, in this last section of the letter here in chapter 3, Peter circles back to all of these same themes, even uses a lot of the same language. So chapter 3, verse 14, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish. Verse 17, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. Verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this, this really helps make the big idea, not just of this section, but really of the whole letter, loud and clear for us. Avoid these false teachers telling you that anything goes. Don't let them fool you into following the sinful desires of your flesh, because that's only going to lead you to destruction. Instead, make every effort to grow in godliness. But why? Why, why must we grow? Why this emphasis on growth? Why should we expend so much energy in this life to be found without spot and blemish when Christ returns? Well, one of the great things about the Bible is that it never just gives us one motivation for our obedience. It motivates us from, from all kinds of different angles and and, and based on all kinds of different reasons. In 2 Peter alone, Peter gives us something like 20 different motivations to grow in our godliness. I wish we had the time to look at them, but we don't. But Peter gives us one of those reasons, one of those motivations in chapter 3, verse 14. Believers are expecting something. We're eagerly awaiting the arrival of a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. All of that beautiful stuff that Stephen read for us from Isaiah 51. We're waiting for that. That's what, that's what Peter just finished saying in verse 13. 
So the exhortation in verse 14 to make every effort to be spotless and and without blemish, it spills right out of what Peter just finished saying in verses 11 and 13. And it's the hope of heaven realized on the last day that should motivate us to grow in our godliness this day, right now. The dawning of that day should affect how we live this day. We're to be like a bride and groom preparing for their wedding day. Even before we were officially married, Stacy and I were already making plans for what it would be like to be husband and wife. So in the days leading up to our wedding, I was moving stuff into the home we would live in, which was two black trash bags of clothes. It took me about 30 seconds. But we also started making plans to, to merge our bank accounts and add each other as, as, as beneficiaries to our retirement funds and, and getting on to each other's health plans and, and managing budgets, all the really fun stuff that you get to do. As the wedding day was approaching, we started preparing in advance for our life together. It was the future that poured into our present behavior. And that's what Peter's saying here. He's saying that wedding day is coming. For the Christian, wedding day is coming, so get ready. The new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells that you have been waiting for is fast approaching. It's right around the corner. So start living like it. One of the things this is meant to teach us is, is that how you view the end will influence how you live here and now. Your ethics and your view of the end are inseparable. What you think about the last day will affect how you live this day. And how you live this day will reveal what day you are really living for. The false teachers, they denied the future coming of Christ and it affected their living. They lived licentiously. They weren't waiting for the next life, and so they wasted their life on this one. But Christian, we are waiting for the life to come, and this is why Peter exhorts us to make every effort to be found without spot and blemish in God's sight. Now, we should not confuse this exhortation, this call with moral perfection, at least not in this life. Our sanctification is both the the declaration, God declaring that we are holy on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness. It's what we just sing about in the solid rock. Sanctification is also the process by which, according to the will of God, we are made partakers of that holiness. So our holiness, in other words, it's, it's both positional and it's progressive. It's positional in the sense that when God saves us, we're made partakers of his holiness. We are called saints. That's our new status, our new position, the moment that we are in Christ. And yet, our sanctification is also progressive in the sense that we grow in holiness through the means that God provides for his people. And though it's a progressive work, it's not perfected in us until heaven. 
And that's what Peter is emphasizing here in these, these verses. Those who are truly God's people, that is those who have been declared holy on the basis of Christ's righteousness, they will live in a godly way. They will live in such a way that reflects God until they're perfected by God on the last day. And this, this is why we have to put forth the effort, the work to grow in godliness. Because growing in godliness isn't just something that happens to us. It requires maximum effort and hard work because we live in a world that is working over time to confuse us and to lead us into destruction, just like those false teachers in Peter's day were doing. So if we are going to grow, if you are going to grow in godliness, if you're going to grow as a Christian, you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to have to put in the hard work. I love the way the English Puritan William Gurnall puts it in his book, The Christian and Complete Armor. It is a massive book. This is a wonderful quote. Christ has given his life to redeem you and has delivered you from all your enemies that you may serve him without fear in holiness all your days. Let devils and men do their wicked work, but not your hand, O Christian. Since God has rescued us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, lose no time. What you desire to do for God, do it quickly. Work zealously. If you have your new prince's sword in your hand, be sure to use it and take heed how you use it, that when you give an account before God, your sheath will not be found rusty through sloth and cowardice. Be faithful, attend to your work and labor, for you are his ambassador and shall see his face with joy. If you're a Christian, then you hold the sword of King Jesus in your hand. And he expects you to get busy using it to kill your sin before your sin kills you. If this means you need to confess some, some sin in your life to someone in the church, then brother or sister, drag that sin out of the dark and into the light so that it will begin to shrivel up and die. If it's needing to, to spend more time in the spiritual disciplines, then make a plan and ask someone to help you see it through. The stakes are high. Whatever you need to do, be found, to be found without spot or blemish on the day our king returns, brother or sister, do it and do it today. Do it quickly. Because not only will this mean you're found holy in his sight when he returns, it will also mean that you are found at peace at peace when he calls you to account. I wonder if you just skipped right over those two little words at the end of verse 14, at peace. Your growth in godliness is the means by which you will stand before the judge on the day of eternity, not in overwhelming fear, but at peace in his holy presence. And it's that future hope, it's that future hope that is meant to frame everything about our lives today. Everything about our lives today, which is 
why Peter goes where he does in verse 15. So in verse 15, he he returns to that thought that he started back in chapter 3, verse 9, which Ryan Dennis preached on last week, where he said that the reason Christ had not yet returned was because he's being patient with sinners like us, longing for many more to be saved. And his patience with us, God's patience with us ought to shape how we conduct ourselves today. So as you wait patiently on Christ's return, remember how patient God has been with you. His waiting and your waiting are tied together. And if you're a Christian, know that the reason God has, God has delayed his return is so that you might be saved and so that you might spend more of your days growing in your conformity to his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, then know that in patience and in love, the God of the universe sent his son, the spotless, righteous lamb of God, to suffer and die upon the cross in your place, drinking the wrath of, of God's Uh, drinking the cup of God's wrath so that you wouldn't have to. He's patiently, get this, God is patiently holding back the hurricane of his righteous wrath against those who've resisted and rebelled against his rule so that those same enemies and rebels might become his friends and citizens of the new heavens and new earth that he is preparing for his people. But soon, God will be done waiting. He will lift his hand and that hurricane of his holy wrath will come for those who rejected the Savior that he provided. But today, this day, God is holding back that day so that you might be saved. So friend, I plead with you this morning, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Submit to Jesus as King today. Do it now. Throw all of your hope into what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Don't wait. Don't delay. Do it today. The logic, the logic of verses 14 and 15 basically can be summed up like this. Because we are waiting for God to destroy the present world and to form a new one, you should do two things. You should do two things. First, be diligent to live godly lives so that you will receive your eternal reward. And two, consider the Lord's delay in coming as an opportunity for salvation. And to support this logic, Peter's going to bring in the big guns. He says, our dear brother Paul also teaches these things in his letters. Now, why why does Peter bring up Paul? Why does he bring up his letters here? Well, because it seems that the false teachers, these false teachers, like someone dislocating a limb from its socket, were twisting things Paul had said probably about freedom from the law to lead people astray, and to advance their own agendas. So Peter refers to Paul to reclaim Paul and to show that Paul wasn't on the side of the false teachers. Instead, he was Peter's beloved brother, his dear friend, his 
co-worker in the gospel and fellow believer. And this is really important because it shows us that there is unity and agreement among the apostles, the guys who had, who had actually seen the resurrected Christ and been commissioned by him. The false teachers, they may reject the second coming of Christ, but these apostles are united. Christ is coming, and the time while he delays is for our salvation. And this unity, this unity among Peter and Paul especially, is really, really significant. Because Peter and Paul didn't always see eye to eye on everything. In fact, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, that he opposed Peter to his face for acting hypocritically with the Gentile believers. And yet, instead of bitterly identifying Paul as his enemy for correcting his sin, Peter affirms him with his very own words as a co-laborer in Christ and as his friend. Here we see Peter doing the very thing he commanded us to do back in chapter 1, verse 7. He is making every effort to supplement his faith with godliness, and godliness with what? Brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with what? With love. This is such a good model for us as we labor in the church to maintain godly relationships with one another. But this isn't the only way that Peter affirms Paul in these verses. He also affirms Paul's letters as authoritative and on par with the Old Testament writings. These are such significant verses because we, we have here one of the early church apostles, even at this early, early date already calling Paul's letters divinely inspired scripture. And what a comfort to know that, that we aren't the first to find some parts of Paul's letters hard to understand, right? Even these first century Christians found, found Paul hard to understand. Even the apostle Peter needed some help understanding some things his buddy Paul had said. This should, this should encourage us. This should encourage us, not discourage us when we come across things that are hard to understand in our Bibles. Often we see the complex things in our Bibles as obstacles to our progress in the faith. But Peter doesn't see them that way. He doesn't say these things are impossible to understand. He just says some things are hard to understand. That the Bible has some things that would be hard for us to wrap our brains around should hardly surprise us, right? I mean, after all, because this book is divinely inspired and because it reveals the mind of God and because the mind of God is vastly greater than our minds, then we should expect to come across things in our Bibles that are sometimes strange and perplexing, not familiar, and not always simple for us. But that is not a reason to throw in the towel when it comes to our Bible reading. Sometimes the Word of God will demand from us the utmost in humility and mental effort. We will have to do the hard work of studying and asking questions and, and seeking the help of others. 
We'll have to put in the time and, and efforts to grow in our understanding of the mind of God so that we become like a tree with roots firmly planted in the truth of God's word. But if we don't put in that work, we won't grow strong and we won't stay healthy. And when the winds of doubt or false teaching blow against us, we will not endure. This means when we open our Bibles, we need to put down our rakes and pick up our shovels and do some digging. Raking leaves is relatively easy work. Sure, your back is going to be a little sore the next day, but it's nothing like the work involved in digging a trench. Digging can be backbreaking work, but it can also be gloriously rewarding because it can do a lot more to improve and preserve your yard than just collecting leaves into a pile. Well, it's the same with our Bible reading. It's the same with our Bible reading. I love the way John Piper puts it when he says, when my sons complain that a book is too hard to read, I say, raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might get diamonds. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is for digging. It is not for raking. So don't bring a rake when the job demands digging. Dig up the soil of the scriptures. Do the hard work and you will find diamonds. You will grow stronger in godliness and you will also grow stronger in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is where Peter turns our attention in the last two verses. So point number two, grow in Christ. Grow in Christ. These, these final two verses, verses 17 to 18, are a fitting conclusion to the letter. And the two, in, the two imperatives that frame these, these two verses, be on guard and grow in grace, they really encapsulate 2 Peter and, and basically sum up the whole aim of, of the Christian life. It, it's like that therefore that, that kicks off verse 17 it spills out of all that's been said, starting way back in chapter 1, verse 1, to what, what was just said in chapter 3, verse 16. And then Peter is going to launch into all these final exhortations in these last two verses about being on guard and growing in grace so that we won't fall away. That, that context is critical. It's really important because Peter's reminding us once again in his last words that there is no neutral gear in the Christian life. The Christian life does not have a place for you standing still. We're either growing in Christ or shriveling. We're either being carried forward into Christ by grace or we're being carried away from him by our sin. Either grow in Christ or drift away and lose him altogether. Those are the options. Stability in the Christian life doesn't come from planting our feet and holding fast. It comes from putting one foot in front of the other, step by step, each step empowered by the grace that God gives us. 
And this is why Peter calls us to be on guard. We're not to be ignorant to the schemes and the sway of this sin-sick world and our flesh and the forces that are dead set on our destruction. Peter has just spent an entire chapter warning us about these false teachers, the snares of the devil, and the deadly desires of the flesh. And so we, in the end, cannot plead ignorance. We have no excuse for falling away. Other places in the New Testament promise that the Lord will guard and protect those who are his from evil. Places like 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, and Jude 24. And these are, these are rock-solid promises that, we should, that, that should comfort us and anchor and motivate our, 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 preser- our preservation in the faith. They should stabilize us. But such promises in the Bible never cancel out our responsibility to watch out for ourselves and to, to watch out for one another so that we don't fall away. In fact, the means by which God will keep us to the very end is by heeding his warnings. It's one of the ways one of the ways the Lord preserves his people. That's what Peter is emphasizing here in these verses. So after we got married, after I moved in my trash bags and we got married, uh, Stacy and I took our honeymoon to Banff, Canada. And we were both excited, at least one of us was, to do a lot of hiking while we were there. Uh, I had spent a ton of time researching the best trails to hike, the ones with the best views. And I had everything mapped out for us so we could we could do as much as we could, hike as many trails as we could since we got there. Well, little did I know that our honeymoon that we had planned to the Canadian Rockies just happened to be the same time of year that grizzly and black bears are getting ready to go into hibernation, which means they're very active foraging and gathering food for the winter. I know where some of you are already going with this illustration. So when we, we showed up ready to hike all these trails, we'd pull into the parking lot only to find that the park services had closed certain trails because of all this heightened bear activity. We'd find these huge signs posted at the trailhead and yellow caution tape blocking the way, alerting us that this trail was closed, warning us that if we ignored the warning signs, there would be consequences, either by way of fines if the park services found us, or possible death if a bear found us first. So what did we do? What do you think we did? Well, you better believe we listened to those warning signs. There was no way we were getting on one of those closed trails. And even on trails that were open, our heads were on a swivel. Every time we heard a twig break or leaves rustling, our guard was up. We took the necessary precautions and we paid attention to every warning sign because we did not want to become bear food. And that is exactly what God in his word is calling us to do. 
the kind of posture to have. He's warning us to be on guard because there are ravenous bears and wolves out there who are hungry. And if we are not on our guard, we will fall prey to them. We will lose our stability. But it's not enough, not enough just to be on guard. If we're going to persevere to the end and receive our eternal reward, we must grow in the grace and the knowledge of the one who's going to get us there, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is the focus of verse 18. These two admonitions, grow in grace and grow in knowledge, they take us right back to the beginning of the letter. So in chapter 1, verse 1, it's God's grace expressed in his saving righteousness that granted faith to us in the first place. Chapter 1, verse 2, Peter prays that God's grace will be multiplied in the life of believers. And in chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, it's God's grace that has granted us everything we need to live a godly life so that we will experience the fullness of all of God's promises. The gift of God's grace, then, is is not just the beginning and the end of 2 Peter. It's the beginning and the end of the Christian life. It's the foundation of our life as believers. We did nothing to deserve it, nothing to earn it, and yet we are called to grow in it, to be nurtured in it, and to be strengthened by it until the day that we die. Otherwise, we will be carried away and fall from our stable position. But we're not only called to grow in God's grace, we're also called to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Again, Peter front-loaded the letter with this very same theme. Chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace are multiplied to us through the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ as Lord. Chapter 1, verse 3, everything required for life and godliness comes to us how? Through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, we're commanded to make every effort to supplement our faith by growing in knowledge. And only those who grow in godliness reveal that their knowledge of Jesus Christ is fruitful. Chapter 1, verse 8. Such knowledge is not the knowledge of, of books and facts. This knowledge that Peter is talking about is the knowledge of a person. We grow in the grace of God by growing up into the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Christian growth is not independent, personal self-improvement. It's growth in our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the Christian's growth plan. This is why we've been saved in the first place. This is, this is what it means to be a Christian. The reason that Jesus has saved you is so that you may know him and enjoy him. Union with Christ is, is the foundation. It's the beginning. It's the starting line. But communion with him is the goal. Communion with him is the goal. This is why our growth in godliness is so essential. Because our salvation and our sanctification are about Jesus and our communion with him. We can have no life apart from him. He is salvation. In him is all righteousness. And knowing him is the heart of holiness. 
And yet, the temptation for many of us is to assume we pretty much know everything there is to know about Jesus. Sometimes we find ourselves tiring of Jesus, convinced we've seen all there is to see in him, all that there is to know about him, as if we've used up all the pleasure that there is to be found in him. If we're honest, we can get spiritually bored with our Savior. We forget what Paul in Ephesians 3, 8 says when he speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. But what we know of Jesus Christ in this life, brothers and sisters, it is barely the tip of the iceberg. Even the Apostle Peter had barely scratched the surface of our Savior's unsearchable riches. It will take all eternity, all eternity to plumb the unending depths of Jesus Christ. And this is why Peter calls us to start plumbing those depths right now, today, this day. So what does it look like? What does it look like to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ? I can't put it any better than the Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane who wrote to a friend with this this incredible advice. He said these words. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Yes, That is what it looks like to grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He is how we grow in godliness. He is how we grow in grace. He's the one who will keep us stable until the end. He is the one who has made you to be without spot and blemish in God's sight by his precious blood. He is the one that we are waiting for. He is the one who is making all things new. He is the one who will return in power and majesty. And he is the one who is worthy of all the praise and all the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. So are you growing in him? Are you growing in your savior? Are you growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ? Now, are you helping others grow in him? Or have you grown bored with him? Brothers and sisters, King Jesus is coming soon. 
He's coming soon. And he's bringing a new heavens and a new earth with him. Until that day, make every effort to grow in godliness and to grow in Christ so that on that day you are found by him without spot and blemish at peace. Let that day change everything about how you live this day. Let's take a moment now to reflect upon these words as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper.